0: We're reading from Mark 7, 1 through 23 today. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. "'You leave the commandment of God "'and hold to the tradition of men.' "'And he said to them, "'You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God "'in order to establish your tradition. "'For Moses said, "'Honor your father and your mother, "'and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die.' wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. So
1: have you guys ever seen these spoof drug commercials before? I don't know why I think they're so hilarious, but they crack me up, okay? So I read one the other day, and it goes like this. Are you suffering from exhaustion, sleep deprivation, headaches? Is your hair thinning? Do you ever wonder to yourself, what happened? Well, you may be suffering from parenting. Parenting affects 10 out of 10 mothers and fathers around the world and can lead to extreme debt and the loss of self-identity. Here's another one I just saw. This is a short video clip. Uh, SNL did this one um, pretty recently. You can run this.
0: For years, I suffered from vertigo.
1: Out of nowhere, I'd feel dizzy, disoriented, even nauseous.
0: Gramamine helped my flashes subside, and I hadn't had a flare-up in years. 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 Until recently. I was jogging, listening to Spotify.
1: Casually browsing iTunes. Flipping through the radio. And I heard this new song that I loved.
0: I loved. I looked to see who it was, and that's when the vertigo hit.
1: It was Taylor Swift.
0: Taylor Swift. (laughs) Taylor Swift.
1: The whole room started spinning. I felt
0: nauseous. I don't like Taylor Swift. I know I don't.
1: Yes, you do. You friggin' lover. Hi, I'm neurologist Dr. David Doctor. Over the last one month, realizing you love Taylor Swift has become the leading cause of vertigo in adults. That's why now, there's Swiftamine,
0: the fast-acting antihistamine tablet that's pink and bubbly just like Taylor herself. I took my daughters to a Taylor Swift concert.
1: All right, cool. We'll cut it there. Uh, it's, just more, it's just more of the same after that, anyway. Um, all right, here's the thing. This is hilarious. A, because it's true, okay? When you hear a Taylor Swift song, you simultaneously like it and don't like it at the same time, and it creates this tension in your brain that gives you vertigo. Um, but second, this is riffing on something that actually is true and actually is helpful. Uh, The basic strategy of real drug commercials on TV are to do two things simultaneously, to diagnose you and then to offer you the cure for that problem, okay? So they're collecting all of your various ailments, whatever they are, under a single umbrella. They provide a narrative for the symptoms that we experience by showing that they all connect to the same root cause, and then they offer you the cure. Now, granted, they're trying to sell you something. But this is also the same thing that good medicine, real medicine, does. Okay, when you go to an excellent physician, what happens? They take a full medical history, right? They get, they get the full layout of everything that's going on with you. They take the tests. They gather all the data. They make a comprehensive list of your symptoms. And then they work to determine the root cause that accounts for everything that's going on. And only then will that doctor provide the cure, because until you get the root cause right, whether it's parenting or allergies or anything else, until you get the root cause right, you don't know what cure you need, right? You don't know what cure to apply. Okay, so in our passage today, Jesus, the great physician, is actually doing the same thing. Uh, It's not a spoof, though. In the first half of this passage, In verses 1 through 13, uh, Jesus identifies a number of symptoms, the outward external signs of a very dangerous disease. And then in the second half, verses 14 to 23, he identifies the root cause, the core problem that ties all these other things together, that makes sense of all the outward symptoms. And it's only after showing us that deep diagnosis that like a good doctor, he points the way towards a deep cure. Now, this particular disease in question is extremely widespread, uh, both in Jesus' day and in ours. It's deadly for our spiritual lives. It's much, much easier to see in other people than it is to see in ourselves. Jesus reserves basically his harshest words in the entire Bible uh, for this disease and for those who spread it. His words are harsh, but actually in that harshness, is a kindness, okay? In that harshness is a grace because his words for us this morning are like a doctor saying, diagnosing the true disease. Yeah, okay, it's going to sound bad, but we need to hear it, don't we? And so this is a shot across the bow. He's saying, wake up to this truth. Wake up to your real condition. If this goes unnoticed, it's going to kill you. The disease goes by a number of names, For our time this morning, we're going to call it religiosity, okay? There's a lot of different ways people refer to this, but for our time, religiosity is the name of the disease that Jesus is diagnosing. So here's our plan. First, we'll look at some of those outward signs of religiosity in verses 1 through 13. Then we'll zoom in on the root cause, in the second half of the passage, and finally, uh, even though this passage doesn't sort of package the cure uh, and explain it in perfect detail and put it in a box, like a box of Swiftamine, whatever that is, uh, there is a big old arrow in the middle of this passage pointing right to the cure that we are all going to need. So that's our plan. Before we jump in, let me pray briefly. Heavenly Father, we do ask... um, As we approach a somewhat difficult text, a harsh one, um, we're kind of surprised sometimes that Jesus uh, can sound so aggressive and abrasive. But uh, we pray that you would show us the kindness in this passage and the grace in this passage, knowing that ultimately you want to cure what's wrong with us. You want to make us whole and complete, not lacking anything. Open our hearts to receive your word. Open our minds and our eyes to understand what you have for us this morning from Mark 7. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we get a summary of the symptoms of religiosity from Jesus in verse 6. Mark 7, verse 6, He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites? Now he's talking to the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees and the scribes, and he calls them hypocrites. He says, As it's written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All right, so probably the most glaring and obvious symptom of this disease for Jesus is hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy is an interesting word. In the ancient world, a hypocrite was just an actor, okay? The word hypocrite means actor. Um, But in the ancient world, unlike today... When our actors go on TV or in movies or even on the stage and they sort of put on makeup, um, what actors did in that time was they put a mask over the front of their face that represented their character, and they just sort of talked through the mask to the audience. Okay, this is the Jesus wants us to see um, as one of the symptoms of uh, of religiosity: the real person was hidden behind the mask that he or she wore. The lips said one thing. They represented themselves as one thing. They acted a certain way, but the true self, the, the identity of that person, their heart, their character, their real life was something other than what they presented to the outside world. These religious leaders presented one thing to those watching, but their true selves, their deepest identity, didn't match up. Okay. They didn't connect. They weren't, there was an integrity there. They were acting. That's one symptom. Here's another one. Because of this, Jesus says, their worship was in vain. What does this mean? Um, elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus tells his followers that his true followers will worship him both in spirit and in truth. And when we come to Jesus with just one or the other, um, Jesus says our worship is in vain. He means it's vapor, it's empty. There's not real substance there. We're not really connecting and experiencing the grace and the, and the love available to us in the gospel. Jesus is pointing to these religious leaders and he's saying, look, you guys have the truth part of that dialed, okay? Like these were the theological Pros, These guys crushed seminary, okay? Like they were at the top of their class to even get to the position that they got to as religious leaders in their day. I promise they know the Bible better than any of us in this room, including me, all of us combined, okay? They memorized the first five books of the Old Testament word for word, and then they would have had memorized large swaths of the rest of the Old Testament as well. These guys knew their Bible. And they probably could very clearly explain a theology of God's love and a theology of God's grace. They could systematize it. They had the truth. But Jesus is saying, their heart was far from me. They, they didn't have, their spirit didn't long for God's love. They, their spirit didn't cry out for God's spirit. Their deepest love was not his glory, but their own And they actually used their aced theological tests to point back to themselves instead of to pointing to God. Their worship was in vain. Here's another symptom, last one, of this disease of religiosity. um, Is that they regularly neglect God's word for their own tradition. In fact, um, in this passage, some variation of the phrase, the traditions or the commandments of men, the commandments of the elders, the traditions of the elders, appears six times in just these few verses. Um, What these guys are doing is they're standing on their own interpretation, their own intuition of how to live and what is right instead of the word that God gave them about what is right and how to live. And... Jesus, Jesus uses this, um, this kind of interesting example about money to bring this symptom to light. So in picking up in verse 10, Jesus says, Moses said, so the word of God says, in the Ten Commandments, I've told you, honor your father and your mother. And then elsewhere, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. In other words, this wasn't a one-time event. This was a pattern and a habit in their life. Okay, what is he talking about? What is this Corbin thing? Uh, Apparently, in the ancient world, these religious leaders had this tradition called Corbin where you could sort of commit all your resources to God and to the temple, so you could declare all of my assets, my 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 four hundred one k, you know, my savings account, even my real estate um, is is Corbin, and therefore it's devoted to God. It would be something like committing or tithing one hundred percent of your um, resources and assets to the church. Okay, so on the outside, this is like, oh man, this is incredibly generous. This looks like a heart that is in love with God that wants to commit um, all of his life to God. But what's really going on is that they could continue to live off their money, but then they didn't have to extend any of their resources to anybody else who was in need. Okay. Because it was declared Corbin. It's like a tax loophole. Okay. You can like get out of actually giving your money where God wanted it to go and instead like declare it Corbin. And then somehow you get out of these other commitments. So Jesus is saying, look, it is God's heart that you honor your mother and your father, that you take care of them in their old age. Elsewhere, we read that it's God's heart that we're generous to the poor and to the alien and to the widow, right? But what these guys have done is they've sequestered their resources over here so that they don't have to obey God's command and his heart of generosity over here. And by their tradition, they have neglected the word and the heart of God. They voided God's clear command on some kind of moral technicality. Uh, They can appear very righteous, all the while neglecting the harder road of actually doing what God has called them to do. The symptoms of religiosity. Just three of them Jesus came up with off the cuff. I'm sure there's more. And I won't press this too hard on us, because I think Um, that uh, the dots, I think we all understand that the dots that connect these ancient and obscure religious leaders uh, to us modern, sophisticated, Western Christians are actually much closer than we tend to think, or most of us would care to admit. But ask yourselves a few questions, maybe in the quiet of your own mind. Um, Do any of these symptoms apply to you? Do you ever present yourself one way on the outside and then in order to look like a better person than you actually are? Okay, does this tendency go up or down when you're around a bunch of other church people? All right. uh, is there ever a disconnect between the truth you claim and the spirit of your heart, which you really long for, what you really get up for in the morning? Uh, do you ever trust your own gut your own intuition, your own opinion of how the world should work or what's right or how you should live over the clear teaching of the Bible. Here, here's how we should put it. If, if your view and the Bible's view ever conflict, who wins? Right? Okay, so um, why is this? Let's just admit, uh, let's just admit up front in, in the, you know, in the um, spirit of honesty and vulnerability, okay, like this is me. This is you. Okay, we all suffer from the symptoms of this disease. So the question is why? What connects these things? What's what's sort of the root cause underneath all these symptoms that tie them together? What is the unifying factor? Well, Jesus shows us that next. The cause of religiosity. And basically he says the cause of all of these symptoms is that we don't understand the human heart. We don't understand our own heart. Mark 7, verse 14. Jesus called the people to himself again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand this. There's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus is saying that we've got this whole human life thing exactly backwards. Okay, of course... All of us are really looking for the same things at the end of the day. I mean, whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, whether you're here investigating the claims of Christianity, whether you consider yourself religious, spiritual, or nothing, we're all really looking for the same basic kinds of things. We want to be okay, right? We want to be okay with ourselves, comfortable in our own skin, at peace with ourselves. We want to get rid of the shame. We want meaning for our lives, something bigger than just the next adventure or purchase or job. We want transcendence, right? We want to matter. And we want to be clean. We want to be good. We want to be pure. Not just putting on a front, but good in a way where we can't, where we're not afraid of being exposed as a fraud or a fake. I mean, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, these are the things we really want. And Jesus sums up all of these human desires by talking about what defiles us. He says the basic human impulse is to assume that we get dirty and we get messed up and we get broken because of things from the outside, because of things that happen to us or things that we do, things out there, bad things, sinful things. Um, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City and uh, he's really good on this point. Listen to how he puts this in his book, The Prodigal God. Nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. But Jesus shows us that a person who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most immoral person. Why is that? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It's putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge. And he goes on to explain religious people, okay, those suffering from this disease that we've already sort of all diagnosed in our own selves, okay, us people, right, Um, commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God, to control him, to put him in a position where they think he owes them. Therefore, despite all the ethical fastidiousness and piety, they're actually rebelling against his authority. If you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard to obey him, to be a good person, then Jesus, he might be your helper. He might be your example. He might even be your inspiration, but he's not your savior anymore. You're actually your own savior. Your good deeds have leveraged the goodness of God so that you can stand on your rights and demand things of him, right? So um, what Jesus is saying here and what Keller is helping us see is that the root cause of this, these symptoms of religiosity are that we have bad insides and not just bad outsides, okay? All that good behavior in the world can't protect us from what's inside of us. In fact, sometimes even the best deeds end up working against us. So the spiritual dynamic that's at work here is something like that old battle uh, of Thermopylae that we learned about at some point in high school history. Let me remind you of the details, okay, in case you're not totally up to date and fresh on ancient Greek battles. So in 480 B.C., the Greeks were trying to defend their land from the invading Persians, okay? And the Persians had amassed one of the largest armies in the history of humanity. At the time, it was claimed to be a million people strong. Historians probably disagree with that at this point now, but it was massive, okay? and um, But for the Persians to make any advancement, they had to get through a pass, at a mountain pass at Thermopylae. And so 7,000 Greek soldiers parked themselves right in the middle of that pass. All right? And they had cliffs on either side, and they bottlenecked this whole Persian advancement so that their massive numbers didn't matter anymore because they had to go through this narrow opening. And they held them off for seven full days, a whole week of attacks. Um, the, the small Greek contingent, held, led by Leonidas, a Spartan, held off this massive Persian invasion. Okay? And, and there wasn't any sign that the Persians were ever going to get through. They were just going to keep coming up to this bottleneck point the whole time because basically the Spartans, the Greeks, had built had put themselves inside of a fortress, right? They had built these walls. They used the natural cliffs as walls, and they had built a fortress um, to keep the enemy out until what happened? And one of the greatest betrayals in, uh, in history, uh, a local Greek farmer, a guy named Ephialtes, if my Greek pronunciation is correct, showed the Persians an old goat trail that they could take to get in and behind the troops, and the Persians could flank them and come around, and everybody who stayed inside that fortress ended up being surrounded by the enemy and ultimately killed. You see, what happened was they thought the enemy was outside, right? And if they could build a fortress strong enough, they could keep the enemy at bay All the time. What was their mistake? Their mistake was they didn't know the enemy was actually on the inside the whole time. They had a traitor amongst them. See, what happens is we build our monuments of good deeds and and we put up walls of righteousness thinking that the enemy, the thing that's going to, that makes that makes the world go wrong, that makes us broken is all outside of us. And so we build these walls of goodness and righteousness and purity for others to see. We think we're fighting the enemy on the outside. All the while, we've misunderstood the enemy. It's been on the inside the whole time, okay? Um, And those walls that we think are protecting us, at the end of the day, they actually end up trapping us. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the Old Testament Says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's a traitor to us. It's beyond cure. Who can even understand it? See, the, it, it's our heart that's beyond cure. Our behavior, our hypocrisy, our vain worship, our tendency to trust ourselves over God's word, all of those symptoms of this heart problem, it, it, they're symptoms of a heart problem, a heart failure. We betray ourselves, the enemies on the inside. And all the walls of our righteousness and good deeds can't help us if the enemy's been on the inside the whole time. You can almost hear the commercial. It's not a spoof, okay? In fact, it's quite pointed. It goes something like this. Do you ever experience pride, judgmentalism, anxiety? Uh, Are you ever um, motivated by people-pleasing or anger and general selfishness? Do you think that you're better than most people? while simultaneously living in fear of being found out and exposed, you may be experiencing a common human condition that about 100% of humanity has always suffered from called religiosity. Uh, So enough of the bad news, Doc. What's the good news here? What's the cure? Uh, If we've learned anything from what Jesus says, we know the cure can't come from us. It can't come from the inside That's where the problem is in the first place. That's not where the healing comes from. So, contrary to almost everything that our culture is telling us today that says, uh, look inside yourself to find your best self, Jesus politely disagrees and says, whatever you do, don't look inside yourself to try to fix yourself. Look to me to try to fix yourself. Look to me to become your best self. Don't rely on yourself. Rely on me. Here's the cure from Jesus. It comes in two steps. The first step is surprisingly simple, but shockingly difficult at the same time. And it's just this. Accept the diagnosis. Okay? Accept the diagnosis. This is step one to Christianity 101. I I think the thing that keeps the vast majority of people from becoming Christians, and actually the vast majority of us that are Christians, from experiencing the full range of God's grace and love, it's not actually the bad things that we do. It's the good things that we do. Okay, we we haven't accepted the diagnosis yet. Uh, Not fully, not really. We still think at the end of the day that we're pretty good people. We still think God loves us because we're kind or smart or make money or are religious or go to church or whatever. We have the order exactly backwards. We haven't swallowed the pill Jesus is handing out here um, that we're actually worse off than we think. That we're constructing this fortress of goodness, hoping it makes us okay and makes us safe from the shame and guilt and gives us rights before God and others Um, that we can negotiate with him. We haven't accepted that it's actually our good deeds, sometimes even our best deeds, that are working against us receiving grace and love from God. Keller, again, puts it like this. He says, once you've recognized it's actually your good deeds and not your bad ones that are keeping you from a relationship with Jesus, then you're ready to hear the gospel, maybe for the first time. So step one, accept the diagnosis. Jesus knows our hearts better than we do. He's telling us we're worse off than we think, but at the same time, he is promising that uh, we are far more loved and cherished than we can possibly imagine. And then step two is accept the purity, the forgiveness, the healing, and the cleansing that only Jesus can apply to your insides from the outside by his grace. All right, this is the great announcement that Mark is highlighting for his readers here, in that little throwaway line in verse 19, when he, in parentheses, it says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Um, you've got to watch these little throwaway comments from Mark, okay? He doesn't do this very often. He's much more of like a reporter than he is a commentator. He very rarely explains what Jesus means or what any events that are happening. And so when he does, when he starts explaining things like this, it's always worth paying attention to. And there's almost always, there is always gold in them their hills, all right? So what is the gold in this little comment that Mark gives for us? Huge swaths of the Old Testament are committed to these purity laws, okay? How to keep humans clean, how to keep God's people clean so that we can encounter God where he has promised to meet us in the Old Testament, that was the temple and huge pages after pages. I mean, if you've ever read through Leviticus, like you just kind of like zone out after a while. It's like, okay, I mean, there are so many things that can make you unclean, right? Foods, certain animals, depending on the cleft of their hoof, it went one way or another. Uh, you know, dead bodies, um, all kinds of stuff, diseases. The list goes on and on. And the purpose of these laws is to teach us one and only one thing and that is God is totally holy that he is other that he is different from us that we cannot approach him casually and flippantly that he is good and powerful and omnipotent and unchanging and holy and that and that to come to him we can't just come as we are we have to be clean so by the time that Jesus lived that hadn't changed God is still fully, totally holy. So how come Jesus can just get rid of these purity laws that God had already set up, right? He can just like, in a word, say, oh yeah, those don't apply anymore. Don't worry about those. All the purity laws are over. So now you and I can eat bacon. We can touch a dead pigskin, right? And play some football on a Sunday afternoon. So like all these things that were outlawed are now okay. Why? How come Jesus can just like change it? God didn't change. What changed? God's character didn't change. Jesus isn't getting rid of these laws. He's not saying they don't matter anymore. He's saying I've fulfilled them. I've done it perfectly. All the ways that you were supposed to be clean and pure, I was clean I am clean and pure. He does everything perfectly right. Both inside and outside. He life, he lived the life that we were supposed to live but couldn't. He is always humble, loving, obedient. He always does the right thing, but not to gain leverage and control over God, just to humbly serve him and obey him. He always loves and expects nothing in return. None of his behavior is contractual or leveraging his rights with God. He doesn't use his privilege and his power to gain access for himself. He lays it down to provide access for others. He was the perfect human being in every way. And here's the cure, okay? Here's the deep cure for the deep problem that all of us have. The cure of the gospel is this great gift that Jesus offers the credit for his perfect life to us. He just applies all that purity and cleanliness and access to God. And he says, you haven't earned it, I've earned it, but here it is for free. And oh, by the way, all the ways that you have botched your life, I'll take that. A trade straight up, okay? It's called the great exchange. It's the gift of the gospel. It's the deep cure that all of our hearts truly need. He trades his perfect life for our messed up one. And because of that, we now have access to the Father. We have forgiveness. We have purity and cleanliness that can't be taken away. We have grace. The path of grace It's neither religion or irreligion. See, people think the opposite of being secular and irreligious is being religious. Jesus is saying here it's not. There is a totally other way called grace. It's something new. It's transformative. It's a gift from the outside that provides a perfect life that actually has the strength to bear the weight and the meaning of our life. And over time, bubbling up from a good heart that Jesus has just implanted in us, for free, okay, no doctor's fees for this heart transfusion, right, like, no, for this heart transplant, no outrageous medical bills that you get in the mail, it's like, $100,000, for what, I just got Advil, no, like, costs, no fees, no insurance, like, this is a free gift from the great physician, a heart transplant, and out of that new heart, over time, will bubble up new symptoms, right, so instead of hypocrisy, integrity, and love, Instead of uh, resting on our own authority and what we think is right, trusting God's good word. There, there are new symptoms that will bubble up from a new heart because of the cure of the gospel that Jesus provides. It's a bit of a, a hard passage, a bit of a harsh word, okay? He's, he's shining a spotlight on our hearts and saying, You're not quite as good as you think you are, okay? But accept the diagnosis, receive the cure. God's grace is the cure. That's the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that uh, you sent your son Jesus into this world to live, die, be raised on our behalf so that we we can know you and we we can love you. Pray that you teach our hearts to love you and trust you and rely on this gift, this cure of the gospel. We ask these things in your name. Amen.